Late in the evening on the 15th of August, 1953, an Iranian colonel named Nasiri climbed into a jeep with several other senior army officers and started driving towards the center of Tehran. In his hands were two firmans, two royal decrees, both signed by the Shah at behest of the British government and an American spy named Kermit Roosevelt, the grandson of T.R. They were making their way towards the house of one General Riahi, the chief of staff of the Iranian armed forces, to deliver the first firman. There were five brigades stationed in the capital, and all of their senior commanders were loyal to Riahi. For their plan to work, the men in the jeep had to get Riahi out, and the first decree was both the general's arrest warrant and a series appointment to his position. The first firman was the tool, but the second was the plot itself. It was to be brought to the doors of the prime minister's house, where it would authorize Nasiri and his crew to take the premier into custody and to install a new one in his stead. This was the beginning of a coup, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Hey everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of Safe for Democracy. It's been a very long while since the last part of the aftermath came out, and I'm sorry about that. I spent most of the fall studying for the LSAT, working on law school applications, and hustling enough money to stay alive. The show kind of fell by the wayside. I think in any case, every time I laid out a timeline for the show, I was being optimistic. This current episode on Iran has five books and a wealth of articles behind it, and reading and putting all of that information together takes weeks. And that's before I sit down to write the scripts and then record it, plus maintaining the website and working for the beans I live on down here in Mexico. I'm not trying to throw a pity party, though. I'm just saying that the episodes will come when they do, and if you've liked them so far, you can rest assured that at least when they do come and end up on iTunes, they'll be good. As far as what you can do to help, it's to engage with the show online. Find us on Twitter, and you can get to us at either safe underscore democracy or at John M. Coombs. And you can find those links on the website too. Reach out on WordPress or on Facebook, and I'd be happy to talk to you. The other thing I need you to do now, literally now, is to rate the show. If you use iTunes, there's a guide on the site to help you out, and if you use Stitcher, it's a little bit easier. 
but please, please rate the show. The last thing is that without making any promises, I've got a bit of a head start on the reading and a pretty long outline for just the first period I wanted to cover with Iran. So we might have some more regular content coming out in the cast. As far as the website, though, we will, as of the release of this episode, have content up on the site twice a week. News roundups, cataloging our country's current descent into madness, and posts on that and everything else. All right, let's get to it. Next up is a very brief history of Persia. Super quick note here at the beginning. I'm going to refer to the country in question as Persia in the way back past, because that's the way we're used to it. But as we get into the modern era, I'll start using Iran, since that's what the Iranians called themselves. If you've heard Dan Carlin's latest hardcore history series, Kings of Kings, we're talking about basically the same polity in the same area. Farsi, what they speak in Iran, comes from Xerxes' Persian the same way that modern Greek descends from the kind Pericles used in his funeral oration. I don't mean that there was one unbroken line of rulers from the time of classical Greece until now, but that Persia, as an idea centered on the territory of modern Iran, was more or less constant. Darius's and Xerxes' Achaemenids became Parthians, became Sassanids. From around 100 BC through 600 AD, Persia is on and off at war with Rome, and in the 7th century AD, the Sassanids, exhausted from perpetual conflict with the eastern emperors in Constantinople, are conquered by the followers of the prophet. A Zoroastrian ecumenical empire became part of the first caliphate, but Persia lived on. After 200 years or so, the Safarid empire broke away from the caliphs in Baghdad, and after that it was the Samanids. I don't want to confuse you. I don't even want you to remember these names, but just to impress on you that the Samanids in 1000 AD were governing the same territory and saw themselves as part of the same cultural body as the Achaemenids 1500 years before. A Samanid proclamation from that period reads... Here, in this region, the language is Persian, and the kings of this realm are Persian kings. In 1200 AD, the Mongols conquered the region, and there was a kind of interregnum, but by 1500 AD, the Safarid Persians were in power, and we've arrived at the beginning of the modern history of Iran in record time. Speaking very generally, 1400 to 1500 AD is kind of the inflection point where Europe was coming out of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, its star waxing as the Muslim worlds began to wane. The Safavid Empire was, in technology and culture, a lot like the Ottoman Empire, which in 1452 took Constantinople and much of Greece from Europe, but which went on to stagnate, for whatever reason, as Europe kept modernizing. So too ran under the Safavids, Ashfarids, and Zans. Which brings us to the Qajar dynasty in 1785, which is where the story of this episode really begins. Now, for better or worse, understanding geography is very important for this episode, and if English is your first language, then chances are that your Middle Eastern geography is bad. So is mine. I think part of the problem is actually that it's too familiar, especially for Americans. We've heard so many place names in so many different and disjointed contexts that the actual placement escapes us. I know that since 2003, even though I knew better, I've had a suspicion that Iraq butts right up against Afghanistan— because that's in some way the story that the White House was selling back when. But let's forget everything we've ever heard and start fresh. Picture Saudi Arabia in your mind. Mostly desert, big rectangle that sticks out into the Arabian Sea at a southeasterly angle, long finger of the Red Sea on the left, the Persian Gulf cradled in a little elbow on the right. 
Right on top of Saudi Arabia is Iraq. Iraq's like a triangle or cone that funnels the Tigris and the Euphrates down to the Persian Gulf. These are the twin rivers of human civilization. They've been inhabited and farmed since the time we learned how to think, and cities like Baghdad, which is right in the center of Iraq, are built on 10,000 years of human habitation. To the right of Iraq is Iran. At this point in history, about 1500, Iraq and the countries to its west, between its border and the Mediterranean, like Israel, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and the Palestinian territories and Turkey, were all part of the Ottoman Empire, a solid wall and a northwesterly slope against Iran's long frontier. The top of that frontier becomes a kind of trunk as the territories of the Qajars get squeezed between the Black and Caspian Seas. This is what is now Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, and at that time part of the latest Persian Empire. Here's where you need to pay attention. Then, as now, that little finger that Persia pushed up between the two seas met Russia, one of the two European empires with which the Qajars shared a border. Now to Persia's immediate right lays Afghanistan, and below that, Pakistan, each taking up about a third of Iran's eastern border. The top third is now Turkmenistan, and at the time was a loose conglomeration of different Turkmen and Kazakh steppe tribes. Afghanistan, then as now, was a sparsely populated, tribally dominated, totally unconquerable place of high mountains and tiny green valleys. Unfortunately for Qajar Persia, Pakistan, then as not now, was the westernmost point of the British Raj. Quick review. Iran, or Persia then, is a little bit bigger than today, with no buffer between its then province of Azerbaijan and Russia in the north, and with a long border shared with British India in the south. Likewise, it shares a border with the Ottomans in the west, but after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War, the European-designed countries of Iraq and Saudi Arabia will emerge, both British-dominated and both looking towards Iran across the frontier and the Shat al-Arab Straits at the top of the Persian Gulf. And as a final comparison, if it helps anybody, Iran's a bit less than three times the size of Texas, so a bit less than Alaska, which is a bit less than Mexico, if that helps. Now, what you might not know unless you read Kipling, or if, if you're a Westerner, your interest in history has strayed further afield than most, is that while all of the European powers were playing politics on the continent through the 17th and 18th centuries in wars of succession, the French Revolution, and the Napoleonic Wars, Britain and Russia were engaged in what they called the Great Game in the Middle East. Afghanistan separated the British Raj, now Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, from the Russian vassals and protectorates in the Turkic steppes to its north, and Persia was its buffer from the Russian finger of territory reaching down between the Black and Caspian Seas. The Great Game is what sparked Britain's disastrous invasions of Afghanistan. These were the wars that Dr. Watson comes back from in Sherlock Holmes, and the wars and treaties that would shape modern Iran, the subject, finally, of this episode. In the year 1878, I took my degree of Doctor of Medicine of the University of London and proceeded to Netley to go through the course prescribed for surgeons in the army. Having completed my studies there, I was duly attached to the 5th Northumberland Fusiliers as assistant surgeon. The regiment was stationed in India at the time, and before I could join it, the Second Afghan War had broken out. On landing at Bombay, I learned that my corps had advanced through the passes and was already deep in the enemy's country. The Persian word for king or monarch is Shah, and the Qajar Shahs take us from the late 1700s up through the early 1900s. 
They also rule over the devolution of their country from a modest but relatively modern empire to a smaller, less governmentally administered, and more technologically backwards place than it had been pretty much since people first crossed the Tigris. The story of that fall from greatness was the story of a series of defeats, both military and political, that Iran suffered at the hands of the British and Russian empires. I say Iran and not the Qajars because the Shahs, as we'll see, were more or less complicit. The Safavids through the end of the 18th century had ruled Iran through a sophisticated civic bureaucracy. Bureaucracy today is in general a bad word, but a system of departments, clerks, governors, and professional bureaucrats is how a Shah could tax and run an empire. By the end of the Qajar dynasty in the early 20th century, according to Iranian historian Irvand Abrahamian, quote, the state, if it could be called that, consisted merely of the Shah and his small personal entourage, his ministers, his family, and his patrimonial household. He ruled the country not through a bureaucracy and a standing army, but through local notables such as tribal chiefs, landlords, the clergy, and wealthy merchants. Unquote. Iran had gone feudal under the Qajars, and without an efficient tax collection system, the Shahs could neither raise enough money to support a regular army, nor to cover the expenses of their lavish court lives. And both deficiencies got their country into trouble with their imperial neighbors. Speaking about the coming series of conflicts and quote-unquote agreements between Iran and the imperial governments of Britain and Russia, Abrahamian writes, quote, Iranians began to refer to the two powers as their northern and southern neighbors. The treaties had far-reaching consequences. They established borders that have endured more or less intact into the contemporary age. They turned the country into a buffer and sometimes a contested zone in the great game played by the two powers. Their representatives became key players in Iranian politics, so much so that they had a hand not only in making and unmaking ministers, but also in stabilizing the monarchy and influencing the line of succession throughout the century. This gave birth to the notion, which became even more prevalent in the next century, that foreign hands pulled all the strings in Iran, that foreign conspiracies determined the course of events, and that behind every national crisis lay the foreign powers. The quote-unquote paranoid style of politics, which many have noted shapes modern Iran, had its origins in the 19th century, unquote. Iranians' natural suspicion of foreign influence when anything out of the ordinary happens played a part in this episode, and definitely will once we get to the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Having just had what may have been our first ever instance of perceptible electoral interference from foreign power in the United States, I think most of us could now imagine developing a paranoia if it weren't just a one-off event, but a known factor in our politics. The first of the agreements imposed in Iran was the Treaty of Gulistan. In 1800, the Russian Empire annexed what is now Georgia and what was then just a northern Iranian province. The new Russian Tsar Alexander, who's the one you see in War and Peace, if you're interested, continued moving towards Iranian Armenia in 1804, and the new Qajar Shah made war to stop him. Iran was outgunned, but Russia was tied up in several other wars, and it took until 1813 to admit defeat and sign the Treaty of Gulistan, which ceded Dagestan, Georgia, and most of Azerbaijan and Armenia to Russia. In 1826, playing the great game, British agents promised military aid to the Qajar Shah if the Shah should choose to launch an invasion of the territories in the Caucasus lost in the previous war. The Russians, no longer occupied by Napoleon, gave the Iranians a drubbing and imposed the Treaty of Turkmenchai, which ceded what was left of the modern territory of Azerbaijan and Armenia to the Russian Empire. 
Turkmenchai also imposed the embarrassing capitulations on Iran, which stipulated that European visitors to the country would be tried under their own and not Iranian law. In 1856, the emir, or ruler, of Herat, a city now located well within Afghanistan, but at the time under the control of the Qajars, declared his city's independence from Iran and asked the British for protection. When the Shahs pressed their claim in war, the British beat them back, and in 1857 forced them to sign the Treaty of Paris, which ceded Herat and its environs to the British. The treaty also granted the British commercial concessions, opening a previously closed market. You can almost feel the Governor's General in Calcutta looking from the Raj to Iran and planning the next expansion. One of those Governors General, Lord Curzon, wrote late in the 19th century that, quote, In a country so backwards in constitutional progress, so destitute of forms and statutes and charters, and so firmly stereotyped in the immemorial traditions of the East, the personal element, as might be expected, is in the ascendant. The government of Persia is little else than the arbitrary exercise of authority by a series of units in a descending scale from the sovereign to the headman of a petty village. Unquote. According to Stephen Kinzer, who you might recognize from the first episode, quote, Had Iran been governed during the 19th century by a strong and sophisticated regime, it might have managed to fend off the ambitions of foreign powers. The pressures, however, would have been intense in any case. The fact that Iran was ruled by weak and self-involved monarchs made it too tantalizing for either empire to resist. Both rushed to fill the power vacuum left by the Qajars, unquote. Despite being the weak links at the end of a very long chain of rulers that stretched back the original kings of kings, Shahan Shahs, the Qajars maintained the titles and the luxury that belonged to their predecessors. Without a tax base or a way to farm it, the Shahs sold concessions, or exclusive deals to develop Iranian patrimony, to the European powers. A concession might entail the Shah selling the right, for example, to build a railroad to a European company for a down payment and a share of the eventual profits. The first major concession went a little bit farther than that. In 1872, Nasser al-Din Shah sold a concession to Baron Julius de Reuter, a German-cum-British citizen and the guy who founded the Reuters news agency. For £40,000 and a percentage of 20-year profits, Reuter bought the right, according to the Cambridge History of Iran, to, quote, build a railway from the Caspian ports southward, and total rights for all factories, minerals, irrigation works, agricultural improvements, new forms of transport, and virtually any form of modernized enterprise, unquote. Lord Curzon called it the most complete and extraordinary surrender of the entire industrial resources of a kingdom into foreign hands that has probably ever been dreamt of, much less accomplished, in history. Now, the Reuter concession stirred up so much opposition from the Iranian public that even the British weren't willing to finance Reuter's activities, and the agreement fell apart. But it was the first major step in turning the Iranian populace against the Qajar Shahs. They were beginning to get fed up. But the collapse of that deal didn't stop Nasser al-Din Shah from later selling Reuter the right to found the National Bank of Iran. The second ill-considered concession by Nasser al-Din Shah was to the British Imperial Tobacco Company in 1891. For £15,000, the British acquired the rights to the entire tobacco industry in Iran, from growing to processing to sale. From Kinzer again, quote, Iran was then, as it is now, both an agricultural economy and a country of smokers. Many thousands of poor farmers across the country grew tobacco on small plots. A whole class of middlemen cut, dried, packaged, and distributed it. That this native product would now be taken from the people who produced it and turned into a tool for the exclusive profit of foreigners proved too great an insult, unquote. A huge coalition formed across Iranian society to oppose the deal, 
And when even the Shah's wives stopped smoking hookah in their harem as a protest, the Shah once again backed down, and in what would become a familiar pattern, had to borrow half a million pounds from a British bank to pay back not just the advance, but the expected future profits of British tobacco in the concession. The last and most important of these agreements was unfortunately the one that did not fall apart. Nasr al-Din Shah, wildly unpopular by the end of his reign, was shot to death outside of a mosque in 1896, and in 1901 his son, Mustafar al-Din Shah, closed the D'Arcy concession. A British entrepreneur named William Knox D'Arcy had bet everything he had on an abandoned Australian gold mine, and when the mine turned out not to have been exhausted, became one of the richest men in the empire. He bought the exclusive right to find, develop, and exploit natural gas, petroleum, asphalt, and mineral wax across three-quarters of Iranian territory. The Shah, in return, received 20,000 pounds up front, 20,000 pounds worth of shares, and the promise of 16% of future profits as an annual royalty payment. This was the deal that lived, because at the time there was only the suspicion of oil in Iran, rather than any developed field, and in fact, D'Arcy would spend his fortune looking and not finding. But when oil did finally turn up, in 1908, it was too late, and the D'Arcy concession was the agreement on which the next 70 years of Iranian history would turn. By the 1900s, Iran, known to foreigners as Persia, had been carved up by the imperial superpowers of Russia and Great Britain. So I'm going to talk about Iran's constitutional revolution next, but first, I know it sounds like I'm wandering a bit here, especially in the context of a podcast about American foreign policy. But the key, here and in every subject we have or will cover, is context. We'll get to the events of the summer of 1953 soon enough, but in order to understand the forces that were at work, both within Iran and in its relations with the United States and Britain, we're going to have to go back a bit and start from an earlier beginning. It's going to make the show longer, but if you're still listening after the first series on Guatemala, I know that neither length nor history turn you off, and that's good, because they're the way the show is going to go. Alright, so it's important to note that while at the end of Qajar rule in the 19th century, Iran was just as backwards as Lord Curzon described, it would shortly be catapulted into modernity. From Abrahamian again, and so you know, Irvan Abrahamian is going to be a huge source for this episode. He's one of the premier historians in Iran. He was educated at Oxford and Columbia. He works permanently right now at the City University of New York. He is a smart guy. Anyway, quote, At the beginning of the 20th century, the total population was fewer than 12 million, 60% villagers and 30% nomads. Life expectancy at birth was probably less than 30 years, and infant mortality as high as one in two. By the end of the century, the population totaled 69 million. The nomadic population had shrunk to less than 3%, and the urban sector grown to more than 66 at the start of the century, the literacy rate was around 5%, confined to graduates of seminaries, Quranic schools, and missionary establishments. Less than 50% of the population understood Persian. Others spoke Kurdish, Arabic, Gilaki, Mazarandi, Baluchi, Luri, and Turkic dialects. Public entertainment came in the form of athletic shows and local gymnasiums, shamanic recitations in tea and coffee houses, occasional executions in public squares, and, most important of all, flagellation processions passion plays, and bonfire celebrations during the high Shiite holy month of Muharram. By the end of the century, the literacy rate had reached 84%. Some 1.6 million were enrolled in institutions of higher learning. 
and another 19 million attended primary and secondary schools. More than 85% of the population could now speak in Persian, and public entertainment now comes in the form of soccer matches, films, radio, newspapers, and, most important of all, videos, DVDs, and television." Unquote. So Iran as a country was poised for change, and the opposition that had sprung up to the Reuter and tobacco concessions, as well as to British influence in general, had given Iranians a new sense of themselves as a people, one that in the right circumstances could unite against the Shah. Those circumstances arrived in late 1905, when the governor of Tehran, acting for the Shah, arrested a number of merchants from the bazaar in a minor dispute and had them bastinadoed, that is, hung by their wrists and whipped on the soles of their feet. The bazaar and its merchants were the entirety, besides the very small number of professionals educated in Europe, of the Iranian middle class, and December 1905, apparently, was the moment when they'd had enough. There's an ancient Iranian tradition called Bast, like the medieval Christian concept of sanctuary, where an Iranian could claim refuge in a mosque or other protected place. The entirety of the Tehran Bazaar claimed Bast in the grounds of the British legation, their embassy, effectively going on strike and putting themselves out of the range of the Shah's limited forces. Over the period of their occupation, the Bazaris gathered support from other sectors of Iranian society, and eventually even the faculty and the students of the Dar al-Fanan Tehran's premier academy joined the protest. They formed a kind of tent city on the well-manicured British lawns, and under the guidance of lectures on constitutions and democracy, their protest meetings moved from demanding better treatment to lower taxes to, in the end, the formation of a constituent assembly, drawn from all sectors of Iranian life, which would write a constitution and transform Iran from an autocratic monarchy into a parliamentary one, modeled on the British. The Bazari strike shut down all commerce in the capital, and the eventual number of protesters, 15,000, was more than the Qajars could oppose. From Abrahamian again, quote, As one eyewitness asked rhetorically of Edward Brown, the famous British historian, the Shah with his unarmed, unpaid, ragged, starving soldiers, what can he do in the face of the menace of a general strike and riots? The government had to climb down and grant all that was asked of them, unquote. So three weeks after first claiming Bast, in 1906, Muzaffar al-Din Shah consented to hold national elections for a constituent assembly. From Kinzer, quote, This was a climactic moment, comparable in some ways to the signing of the Magna Carta in England seven centuries before. One British diplomat cabled his amazement back to London, quote within a quote now, One remarkable feature of this revolution here, for surely it is worthy to be called a revolution, is that the priesthood have found themselves on the side of progress and freedom, this, I should think, is almost unexampled in the world's history. If the reforms which the people, with their help, have fought for become a reality, all their power will be gone, unquote and unquote. That was an accurate statement every way you looked at it. The Constituent Assembly, or Grand Majlis as it would come to be called, had to work fast and drew up a constitution based on the more liberal examples on offer in Europe between October and December of 1906. It included a Bill of Rights guaranteeing the protection of life, property, and honor, the freedoms of speech, organization, and assembly, equality before the law, habeas corpus, and pretty much every other protection guaranteed under every other liberal democratic constitution. It also granted the franchise to nearly all Iranian men and eliminated property requirements later in the decade, leading to universal male suffrage by 1911, which would have unforeseen consequences. Unfortunately for the revolutionaries, Musafar al-Din Shah died of a heart attack shortly after signing the constitution in late 1906 and was succeeded by his anti-constitutionalist son, Mohammad Ali Shah. Don't worry too much about remembering any of the Qajar Shah's names. 
I think this period's important for understanding the next one, but you can let some of the details slip by. In the middle of that year, 1907, Iran's two imperial neighbors got together to settle the great game in Iran once and for all. Between them, they signed the Anglo-Russian Agreement, the gist of which is that they would divide Iran into separate and mutually respected spheres of influence. Russia laid claim to the northern third of the country, Britain to the southern third, with the middle left as a neutral buffer zone. The direct consequence of the agreement wasn't some new concession or project, but that the two empires, now that they weren't using Iranian politicians against each other in maneuvers in the capital, decided together that a powerful but predictable and malleable shah served their joint interests better than a fractious, fledgling democracy, and they began to intrigue with the shah to that effect. In 1908, Muhammad Ali Shah threw in with the empires against his people. Using money obtained from the British, he suborned the Cossack Brigade, the only effective military unit in the country. Russian trained and led, the brigade was modeled on Cossack cavalry units in the Russian Imperial Army, and both had and would play the part of Kingmaker and Praetorian Guard in Tehran. Together with elements of the Russian and British colonial militaries, Muhammad Ali Shah marched on the capital and bombarded and then dissolved the Majlis. Muhammad Ali ruled for the next year as an autocrat with the backing of the British and, surprisingly, much of the clergy. Just a year ago, they had backed the Constitutionalists, but Abrahamian writes that the religious had been turned off by far-reaching secular reforms. Quote, They accused the ulama, or clergy, of covering up slimy interests with sublime sermons. They advocated immediate improvements in the rights not only of religious minorities, but also of women. They criticized the constitutional clause that gave the ulama veto power over parliamentary legislation. They even argued that Sharia had nothing to say about state laws. By mid-1907, a sheikh considered to be the most senior in Tehran had formed a society of the Prophet, rebuilt bridges to the Shah, and issued a major fatwa denouncing the liberals for opening up the floodgates to anarchism, nihilism, socialism, and naturalism, unquote. That's interesting to me for two reasons. First is that as you involve the religious and the political, so will religion become politics. The second thing is that this conflict looks so much like the ones we have at home. You don't have to look any further than the rhetoric that's been coming out of the religious right for the last eight years to find people paraphrasing the sheikh, and no further than our own liberals to find progressives irritating the religious. Part of wreaking the havoc that we do on other countries comes down to failing to see them as human, as like us. Well, in this, as in many other conflicts we'll see over the course of the series, the Iranians are just like us. By the middle of 1908, the constitutionalists had gathered enough support to march south on Tehran from the northern Iranian province of Azerbaijan and take the capital back again. Muhammad Ali abdicated in favor of his son, Ahmed. The British and the Russians kept intriguing, and resentment kept growing. We see here a dynamic that becomes a constant through the 20th century. Constitutionalists and royalists at each other's throats, with foreigners supporting the Shah and the ulama, the Islamic clergy, changing sides depending on how secular or accommodating they're planning on being. Further pictures from Tehran show rioters in action as anti-royalist partisans set about their work of destruction. Royalists, in the most literal sense of the word, were in for a rough time. If Iran itself is one major player in what's going on in this episode, and the constitutionalist conflict is another, then our third major party is the AIOC, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. British Burma Oil, which hadn't had much luck finding oil in Burma, absorbed the Darsi concession at the behest of the British government in 1909. 
It became the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, but because it later changed to Anglo-Iranian, and we like to simplify the name game here at Safe for Democracy, from now on, it's AIOC. The British, foreseeing the role that oil and petroleum would play in this new century, had decided that the Darcy concession needed to be regularized and more heavily exploited, and encouraged the takeover by Burma for that reason. From Kinzer, quote, The newly formed Anglo-Iranian oil company began extracting huge quantities of oil from beneath Iranian soil. Winston Churchill called it, and he quotes Churchill now, a prize from fairyland beyond our wildest dreams, unquote, unquote. Churchill, then a young politician pretty recently returned from service on the Raj's northwestern frontier in South Africa, had a particular interest in AIOC. Smelling the onset of war in early 1913, and in pursuit of a personal plan to change the British imperial fleet from coal to oil, Churchill, as first Lord of the Admiralty, led the British government in a takeover of AIOC. His Majesty's government purchased 51% of the shares in the company, granting it control and capitalizing its operations to allow for even more rapid expansion and extraction. After war broke out, the members of the Triple Alliance sat down to hammer out who would own what at the end of the war. The results of those secret negotiations in 1915 were known as the Constantinople Agreements, and they are no small part, along with the Duran Line and Sykes-Picot, of why the Middle East ended up so fragmented and fractious at the end of the war. As far as Iran went, the British would be allowed to expand their sphere of influence to include the neutral third laid out in the Anglo-Russian Agreement of 1905. The Russians, in turn, would receive Constantinople and the Bosphorus Straits, granting them a Mediterranean port. But when the Russian Revolution erased the Tsar and his government in 1917, the British were briefly left in sole control of Iran. According to the Encyclopedia Iranica, quote, The Kerensky government ordered the Russian commander to evacuate his troops from Persia. The Bolshevik government of Lenin went even farther in disclaiming any design on Persia. And in February 1918, Trotsky stated officially that so far as revolutionary Russia was concerned, all treaties and concessions imposed on Persia were null and void, unquote. Herzon, for his part, told Parliament that they'd have to wait until the end of the war to figure out what to do with the Russian agreements. According to the Cambridge history, quote, The close of the First World War found Iran in a state of near anarchy, unquote. It had been invaded and fought over by British troops, Ottoman troops, Armenian levies, Kazakh cavalry, Russian Cossacks, and more besides. Its agriculture and economy were in a shambles, and the picture hadn't been good before the war. None of that, though, was a deterrent to the designs of Lord Curzon who was once again looking from the Raj to Iran. In the man's own words, quote, If it be asked why we should undertake the task at all, and why Persia should not be left to herself and allowed to rot into picturesque decay, the answer is that her geographical position, the magnitude of our interests in the country, and the future safety of our eastern empire render it impossible for us now to disinherit ourselves from what happens in Persia. We cannot permit the existence between the frontiers of our Indian empire and those of our new Mesopotamian protectorate, a hotbed of misrule, enemy intrigue, financial chaos, and political disorder, unquote. Which is all to say that as he surveyed the wreckage of post-war Iran, Curzon's first impulse was not to back off. As with us at the end of the Second World War, Russian communism made the British more nervous about preserving the empire after the war than while fighting it. The British had acquired, in the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, protectorates in both Palestine and Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. Along with the already British-dominated Egypt, the country had almost realized the imperial fever dream of building a line of vassal states from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean, and the only missing link in that chain was an Iran free, for the moment, of Russian imperial and Bolshevik influence. In the interest of strengthening that weak link, Curzon drew up the Anglo-Persian Agreement of 1919. 
I'm sorry that all these treaties have the same name, although I do like how banality of evil it is to name all these thinly veiled instruments of imperialist domination agreements. The agreement would have granted Britain the exclusive right to loan money to the Iranian state, and to provide it with weapons, military advisors, instructors, and even teachers. It would also, in an echo of the stillborn Reuter concession, obtain the sole right to build Iran's railroads, fight its famine problems, and expedite its entry into the League of Nations. In return, Iran would receive a £2 million loan. Oblivious to the way the Iranian public might react, Lord Curzon induced the current prime minister to sign the agreement by way of, with diplomatic nicety stripped away, bribes. Abrahamian notes that, quote, a London newspaper mocked that Curzon, and here he quotes the newspaper, seems to be under the impression that he discovered Persia, and that, having discovered it, in some mysterious way, he owns it, unquote. Not surprisingly, the Anglo-Iranian agreement was received in Tehran with mass protests, petitions, bizarre strikes, street demonstrations, and even assassinations. Unfortunately for Curzon, the Majlis had to approve of any treaty for it to be binding. So with the prime minister's signature and without parliamentary approval, the Anglo-Iranian agreement was stuck in a kind of legal limbo. Not to be deterred, the British used their privileged position as occupiers in post-war Iran to start implementing the treaty anyway, which is an obvious part of what continued to piss off the Iranian population so powerfully. By 1921, Iran was in bad shape. The war had left it devastated and politically unstable, and as the British intrigued with the Shah shuffling through a menagerie of different prime ministers looking for one who would be able to bring the astoundingly unpopular Anglo-Persian agreement to a vote. It seems that nobody now living knows exactly why what happened next happened, and in any case, the eventual result was more important than the genesis. One General Ironside of the British Army had taken over the Cossack Brigade in the wake of the Russian officers' departure to fight for the Whites in the Russian Civil War. Ironside had identified a young Iranian officer named Reza Khan as particularly adept and, maybe, cut for more than military service putting down tribes in the provinces. From Abrahamian's History of Modern Iran, quote, Unbeknownst to Curzon, Ironside considered the Anglo-Iranian agreement a lost cause and was on the lookout for a suitable man on horseback to save the situation, unquote. This was, apparently, to put Reza Shah in the position to carry out a coup, and he did, using money and ammunition provided by Ironside to once again secure the loyalty and action of the Cossack Brigade. What problem exactly was being solved and whose interest the coup was meant to serve is not apparently clear. What seems most plausible to me is that in light of growing tribal banditry, a perceived threat of Bolshevik incursion through Azerbaijan, and the general collapse of the state in the wake of the most recent prime minister's failure to even form a cabinet, Ironstein was doing what he could to create any kind of order in the country, irrespective of what it might gain his imperial masters. What is clear is that many Iranians saw the coup as a British plot, because as Abrahamian writes, quote, On the eve of his march to Tehran, Reza Khan assured a joint delegation from the royal palace and the British legation that he was pro-Shah and pro-British, and that once the latter had withdrawn from the country, he would organize a force capable of dealing with the Bolsheviks, unquote. Whatever his promises to the British, Reza Khan marched on the capital and installed a new premier, who quickly formed a cabinet, annulled the Anglo-Persian agreement, and signed an agreement with the Soviets, which forgave all imperial-era loans, claims, and concessions, and granted the Soviets the right to invade should a third party ever make war in Iran giving Reza a protective umbrella against the British. Reza Khan here is doing what the shrewd politicians of small powers can, playing empires off one another. In the moment, resentment of the British was at a high point, so he signs a treaty with the Russians, even though both he and the Shah are wary of Russian influence. 
While Reza Khan stopped at installing a premier, between 1921 and 1925 he made himself first Chief of the Army, then Minister of War, then Commander-in-Chief, and by the end of the period had taken on the premier or prime ministership as well. He used that time to reform and modernize the Iranian military, giving himself a strong, loyal power base, and, in the words of a British consul, setting himself up as a virtual military dictator. By 1926, Reza Khan was secure enough in his position to convene a constituent assembly, the same kind of gathering that had written the constitution, and contrived to have it dethrone the Qajar Shah and crown him Reza Shah Pahlavi, the name of his new dynasty. Reza Shah's reign, from the 20s through the 1940s, coincided with that of fascists in Europe like Franco and Mussolini, and with the nationalist reformers closer to home, like Turkey's Kemal Ataturk, who the new Shah both visited and admired. But Abrahamian points out that comparing him to either set is inappropriate, since both inherited organized, bureaucratized, modernized states. Reza Shah's mission and position were more like the Tudors and the Habsburgs, carving a state out of a feudal empire. And Reza went about that work, the newly effective army at his back, with brutal efficiency. He settled nomads, subjected Iran's independent tribes to the control and taxation of government, and brought the country's massive, restive, intriguing nobles to heel. Resistance was met with repression and bloodshed. From Kinzer's book, quote, Time and again, Reza Shah resolved problems with this brand of decisiveness. Once during a visit to Hamadan in western Iran, he is said to have learned that people were going hungry because bakers were hoarding wheat in order to drive up prices. He ordered the first baker he saw thrown into an oven and burned alive. By the next morning, every bakery in town was filled with low-priced bread, unquote. Under Reza Shah's rule, the Majlis came to be like the Roman Senate under the emperors, technically functioning and with a technical legal role, but wholly under the control of the monarch, which goes some way to explaining its weakness and indecisiveness when the opportunity came around to govern again. The Shah set about developing networks for modern communication and transportation. He founded the University of Tehran and formed scholarship programs by which huge numbers of middle-class Iranian youths could travel to Europe for the university educations. The number of factories and new enterprises skyrocketed, and the country moved in two decades from feudal pastoralism into the modern age. Unfortunately, that rapid modernization wasn't driven as much by good policy as by royal favoritism and the granting of production and trade monopolies to wealthy friends. Arthur Millspaugh, an American brought in as a financial advisor in the 1920s, said in 1942 that the Shah had built, quote, a government of the corrupt, by the corrupt, and for the corrupt. The Shah's taxation policy was highly regressive, raising the cost of living and bearing heavily on the poor. Altogether, he thoroughly milked the country, grinding down the peasantry, tribesmen, and laborers, and taking a heavy toll from the landlords. While his activities enriched a new class of capitalists, merchants, monopolists, contractors, and politician favorites, Inflation, taxation, and other measures lowered the standard of living for the masses, unquote. As far as the other powerful party in Iranian life, the ulama, Reza Shah took a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, he outlawed many traditional titles, mandated Western forms of dress, and regularized the classification of clergy, registering official clerics with the state and depriving the mosques of their traditional tithe. But rather than the elimination of Islam as a political force, as Ataturk was trying to achieve in Turkey, Abrahamian writes that, quote, Reza Shah aimed not so much to undermine religion with secular thought as to bring the propagation of Islam under state supervision, unquote. He courted the approval of prominent clerics and put them on state radio and in the cinemas in Tehran, binding up their authority with his. I'll get into a full explanation of uh, Shiite versus Sunni Islam in the next episode, because that's when it becomes really essential. But what's very important to know at this point is that Shiism is almost entirely specific to Iran. 
and that up to this point it has not been the Islam of power. It was founded, if you can call it that, by Ali, the cousin and son-in-law of the Prophet, who was passed over as the Caliph, the leader of the faithful, and then martyred. While Shiite clerics had for centuries dispensed justice and Sharia courts, Reza Shah was now integrating them into the working of the state, familiar territory for their Sunni counterparts, but relatively new ground in Iran. When the state gets heavily involved in a religion in Iran, then Islam inevitably gets heavily involved in politics, and the ulama would go on to play an increasingly prominent role in directing the country's future. I know this is a lot of information, and probably none of it seems germane to the night in the summer of 1953 that opened up the episode. But what I'm most trying to get at with this section about Reza Shah is that despite or even because of the modernization and centralization of the state that he takes on, the country that he'll leave to his son in the 1940s is going to be incredibly unstable. He'll have built up a powerful military and a group of capitalists, somewhere between cronies and entrepreneurs, but possessed of massive wealth. He'll have created a generation of upper and middle class young people educated in Europe and attracted by democracy, socialism, and fascism. He'll have Europeanized the judicial system, which seems in general like a good thing, but which deprived the ulama of their traditional role in society, while at the same time giving them state sponsorship and introducing them to the mobilizing power of the mass media. And because Reza Shah ruled the country through his personal authority and strength of will rather than institutional structures, he'll leave his son little assistance in corralling this fractious state. The army's strong, but it's not so much loyal to either the Shah or the constitution as it is to him personally. The Majlis, which should in correct circumstances be able to assume some of the burden of administering the state, will be packed with sycophants and schemers, poor in government and skilled in intrigue. And he won't have dealt decisively with either the British or the Anglo-Iranian oil company. If you were kind of tuning out that last section, this is the time to tune in. The Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, as its operations in Iran expanded, acquired stakes in and made subsidiaries out of other British oil interests. In 1927, one of those companies, Turkish Petroleum, soon to be Iraq Petroleum, hit a gusher at the Kirkuk field in Iraq, later known as one of the largest discoveries in the history of oil prospecting. Under the Darsi concession, AIOC owed 16% of its profits to the Iranian government per year, but the concession laid out no regime as to how to calculate those profits. So what the AIOC ended up paying to the Iranians was calculated behind closed doors and after the company had paid taxes to the British government, since it was headquartered in London. Not only that, but additional revenue streams, like that at Kirkuk, made it even easier for the company to confuse its finances and shield its profits from the annual royalties due to the Shah. From the end of the First World War through the end of the 1920s, the company's revenues and the taxes it paid to the British government, along with the dividends it doled out to its shareholders, went through massive increases. While at the same time, the royalties it paid to the Iranians remained stagnant. And the Iranians, from the Shah down to the average worker, were very much aware of the discrepancy. The British, for their part, felt that the arrangement was generous enough. They'd built the oil fields and the pipelines, set up the sales, refined the oil. Since the formation of the AIOC in the 1910s, they'd also set up their refinery at Abadan. 
Abadan was a sandy island at the very tip of the Persian Gulf, and the British had turned it into a self-contained factory city, with barracks and shanty towns and company stores for Iranian labor, and clubs and bungalows and manicured lawns for the British staff, who lived like their Nabob predecessors in Imperial India, complete with polo matches and racial segregation. Reza Shah directed his ministers to renegotiate the terms of the Darzi concession in 1928, negotiations which the British flatly refused, but despite deteriorating conditions at Abadan and the meager royalties, a tenuous peace held until 1929. In that year, the Great Depression hit. Oil prices and sales fell worldwide, and AIOC's royalty payments dwindled to almost nothing as a result, and this, for Iranians in general, was intolerable. On May Day 1929, the Communist Party, which had been quietly organizing Iranian labor, launched a strike of over 11,000 refinery workers at Abadan. They demanded an eight-hour day, better wages and housing, recognition for their union, the same pay as the workers the British imported from India, and paid holidays. If the Shah was upset with the British, he wasn't ready to side with the communists, and together King and colonists put down the strike by force. Their joint action in 1929 might explain why the Shah allowed popular resentment to build for another three years before he made his move. When he asked his cabinet in November 1932 what progress they'd made in negotiations with the company, they reported that they'd made none, and the next day Reza Shah unilaterally cancelled the Darzi concession, bringing the British to the table. That action led to the Anglo-Persian Agreement, another one, of 1933, the negotiations for which went about as poorly as could be expected. The new treaty would extend the length of the agreement by another 60 years, reduce British territorial holdings by just a bit, and guarantee a minimum annual payment of £750,000 if the new annual royalty of 20% fell below that number. The company, for its part, would gain exemption from Iranian import and export duties, and the Iranians would lose the right to annul the agreement, instead submitting to a complicated regime of binding arbitration. In comparison to what Iran was receiving at the time, £750,000 might have seemed like an acceptable sum. But as petroleum became the world's number one resource, and as the British continued to increase the quantity of oil extracted, it proved to be far too low a figure, especially when oil ventures in other countries, like Venezuela, were signing agreements with 50-50 splits of profits. From Abrahamian again, quote, Distrust of the monarch and the company intensified in 1933 to 1934 when the Shah signed a new agreement with the AIOC. In return for a measly 4% increase in royalties, the Shah extended the concession all the way to 1993. This confirmed the suspicion that the Shah, despite all his patriotic talk, was in fact beholden to London. The British minister himself warned that, and he quotes the British minister now, all of his sins are attributed to us. Few, he added, expect that the present system of government will outlive its author. Unquote. Such opposition poured out into the open as soon as Reza Shah was forced to advocate in 1941. Unquote. When the Second World War broke out, the Shah tried to play the traditional Iranian role, remaining neutral and entertaining offers from all factions. The British and the Russians, both eager to protect the oil fields and much closer to hand than the Germans, weren't having that. On the 19th of July and later on the 16th of August in 1941, they demanded that Reza Shah take measures to prevent a German invasion. The Shah declined to invite an occupation of his territory, and on the 25th of August, a joint force of British and Russian troops invaded and occupied anyway, deposing the Shah and sending him into exile. And now the march towards Tehran, as the Russians move down from the north, and the British sweep up from the south to cement the strategic line across Iran. Great advantages to Russia and Britain are brought about by the establishment of wartime control over that part of Iran situated between Iraq, Turkey, 
Soviet Transcaucasia and the Caspian Sea. All credit to the troops from India who played such a conspicuous part in this strategic victory. The British considered trying to restore the Qajars to the throne, but when they discovered that the only living scion was in London and spoke no Persian, they consented to allow Reza's son to ascend the throne as Mohammad Reza Shah. On the 16th of September 1941, Mohammad Reza took the oath of office in civilian clothes in front of the Majlis, two of a number of gestures he offered as a break from the rule of his father. He vowed to reign and not rule as a constitutional monarch made a massive donation to the government for hospitals and libraries and colleges, put the estates his father had confiscated from regional nobles under the control of the state, and assured the ulama that he would endeavor to relax his father's restrictions on religious dress, like the veil. All that was apparently to the good, and won him much support among the population. It might also remind you of the succession to power of another child of autocrats, Bashar al-Assad. Both educated in Europe, both came into power unexpectedly, though under different circumstances, and both began their terms with a number of grand Western conciliatory gestures to the delight of the press and Western elites. And we know how Assad turned out. That the sons of dictators are educated in Europe is no indication that they will not turn out to be dictators. I think, too, there's some blame or moral responsibility to lay at the feet of the prep schools and universities in England and on the continent that neither turned away the sons of murderers nor managed to instill any ethic in them. The same is true now of my school, Georgetown, and Harvard and Yale and all the other elite institutions of the East Coast, all of whom are all too willing to take in the budding autocrats, narcotraficantes, and gaudios of the Global South as long as they're paying full tuition. From Abrahamian, quote, The 1941 invasion thus inaugurated an interregnum that lasted a full 13 years. It put an end to the era when the monarch had ruled supreme through his undisputed control of the army, bureaucracy, and court patronage. It began a new period when the monarch continued to hang on to much of the armed forces, but lost control over the bureaucracy and patronage system. In these 13 years, power was hotly contested between the royal palace, the cabinet, and the majlis, and the urban masses, organized first by a socialist movement and then by a nationalist one." Unquote. During the war, the British and Russians re-established their old division of the country, occupying the south and north respectively, with a neutral zone containing the capital in the middle. At the end of the war, both nations were slow to withdraw their troops, the British eventually pulling back to Iraq and their enclave around Abadan, and the Russians moving into their part of Azerbaijan, the bit of the province they'd hacked off a hundred years before. The two major players on the scene were the Tuda, or Masses, party, and of course, the Anglo-Iranian oil company. AIOC used its dominant position in the post-war to continue expanding. It opened six new oil fields in Iran and acquired major stakes in Kuwait oil, Qatar Petroleum, Anglo-Egyptian, and consolidated refineries in Israel. It built refineries, processing facilities, and pursued exploration as far afield as France, Australia, Trinidad, Nigeria, Sicily, and Papua New Guinea. To a generation of British leaders who had grown up in the glory of empire and were now witnessing its decline, AIOC represented one of the last frontiers of global imperial influence. The company's profits grew apace and provided a steady flow to the treasury in London, amounts of sterling that went far from matched by its payments to Tehran. Long passage from Abrahamian's book, The Coup, now, quote, This traumatic growth did not necessarily endear the company to the public. Over the years, Iranians accumulated an ever-increasing list of grievances against the AIOC. It suspected the company of irregular bookkeeping, since it refused to both publish proper annual accounts and define what it meant by royalties based on net profits. 
The Foreign Office, Britain's equivalent of the State Department, admitted the company was reluctant to divulge even to us the profit element per barrel in Persian operations, much less the basis on which it is calculated. Either way, the sum was deemed grossly unfair, especially after 1943, when Venezuela signed the first of the 50-50 deals. Mexico had gone even further in 1938, nationalizing the local British and American-owned oil company. Iranian complaints against the AIOC became more vociferous in 1950, when the American oil company and the Persian Gulf signed 50-50 deals with both Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, unquote. There are a couple other things at work here. First is that there was an incredible amount of environmental devastation going on at Abadan, which was par for the course, but it's certainly a different thing when your own company's doing it and your own public is reaping the benefits versus a virtual occupier. Second, the company was selling huge quantities of oil at a massive discount to the British Navy, which doesn't seem like too much of a problem for an Iranian in the street, except that Iranian compensation was based on some vague notion of profits, however they were calculated, and selling a large portion of the oil to the British Navy, which itself was a tool of colonial exploitation, diminished those profits and thereby the royalties that were paid out. All of which is to say that resentment against the AOC was building up in Iran in a big way. So I mentioned the Tuda or the Masses Party a while ago, but this is where it really comes into its own. The Tuda was the Communist Party in Iran, Little C. There had been an active Communist Party Big C underground in the earliest part of the century, but the Tuda was a specifically Iranian entity. Its connections to the Communist Party Big C and the Comintern based in Moscow seems to have changed over time, and depended on which faction, Communist Internationalist or Iranian Nationalist, dominated within the party. In any case, the Tuda was founded in 1942 and gathered together all of the liberal reformers in the country, beginning to peek their heads out after the dethroning of Razor Shah. The nucleus of the party was the Group of 53, don't remember that name, a collection of left-leaning university professors, communists, and organizers imprisoned by the Shah after the oil strikes in the 30s. Pro-Soviet and pro-socialist elements took over the party in the mid-1940s and launched massive and massively successful organizing efforts among the poor championing the stuff that we're still trying to get a handle on here at home, like minimum wages, workers' rights, equal pay for women, and effective universal education. In their own words, quote, Our primary aim is to mobilize the workers, peasants, progressive intellectuals, traders, and craftsmen of Iran. They work, but do not receive the fruit of their labor. They are oppressed by the oligarchy. They have little to lose, but much to gain if the whole social structure were radically transformed and the means of production were owned by the people. When we say that our aim is to fight despotism and dictatorship, we are not referring to specific personalities, but to class structures that produce despots and dictators. In August 1941, many thought that Reza Shah's abdication had ended overnight the dictatorial system. We now know better, for we can see with our own eyes that the class structure that produced Reza Shah still remains. Unquote. Over the first decade of Mohammed Reza's time as Shah, the Tuta became the political force in Iran commanding massive loyalty among the people and an incredible ability to organize strikes and demonstrations. The biggest hiccup, though, in the Tuta's nationalist credentials and sympathy came from the Soviet Union. After the war, the proximity of Soviet troops in Russian Azerbaijan gave Tuta activists in Iranian Azerbaijan what might be called a surfeit of confidence. They declared a People's Republic of Azerbaijan run by the most pro-Soviet elements of the party, and when the capital threatened to step in, Stalin sent Soviet troops south of the border to protect the secessionist republic. This is a little bit like what happened in Georgia a few years ago. Non-Tuda Azerbaijanis, wary of trading one dictator for the one whose yoke the British had just thrown off, rebelled. Things looked to be spiraling out of control when the then Prime Minister of Iran traveled to Moscow to hash them out with Stalin. 
That man's name was Kavan, a veteran of the Constitutional Revolution and widely regarded as the most wily politician in Iran. He deserves a cast of his own, but we don't have the time to get into it, although he'll crop up again before the end. Anyways, Kavam smoothed things over. Soviet troops withdrew, and Iranian government troops, led by the Shah and their American advisor, General Norman H. Schwarzkopf, who's the father of the Norman H. Schwarzkopf that you know from Desert Storm, marched into Tabriz to bring Azerbaijan back into the fold. Another Iranian historian, Katuzian, wrote, quote, After the reoccupation of the provincial cities, the gallant central Iranian troops inflicted mass punishment on innocent and defenseless people on the express orders of their high command and their supreme commander, Mohammad Reza Shah himself. There was wholesale killing, burning, looting, and rape. For this time, Azerbaijan had been invaded not by foreigners, but by fellow Iranians. Mohammad Reza, like Bashar al-Assad, was willing to play the part of European intellectual come benevolent prince only as long as his subjects continued to pay him homage as they had his father. Mohammad Reza Shah doesn't get to wield a lot of power in these early years, and those who want to defend the machinations that eventually kept him on the throne might claim that there was no way to know how badly things would go, a la Assad. But right here, you've got a clear indication of what the Shah would do as soon as he obtained the kind of power his father had. The other important thing to take away from the Azerbaijan crisis is that it reinforced Western fears about Soviet interests in Iran, and built up the British and American opinion that the Tuta party was thoroughly communist and thoroughly subordinate to Moscow. For his part, Abrahamian quotes George Kennan, an American diplomat in Moscow who wrote the Long Telegram, a document that more or less spelled out the entire containment strategy that would be the United States' guiding light through the first decades of the Cold War. It was Kennan's opinion that the Russians weren't interested either in obstructing British access to Iranian oil or in taking the oil for themselves, but in protecting their own oil fields in the Caucasus, the ones that Hitler had very nearly reached in the summer of 1942 during Operation Edelweiss. Which is to say that both the Soviets and the West were jockeying for position in Iran not necessarily because they wanted to obtain or expand a sphere of influence there, but because they were afraid of the preparations the other side was making for the same reason. This dynamic is called the security dilemma, and it's going to play a part in the behavior of the British and the Americans in this and pretty much every other episode. Luckily enough, I can quote a pretentious little essay I wrote in college about it. The security dilemma comprises one of the chief difficulties in both the study and practice of international relations. It's composed of one intractable dynamic, that any increase to one state's security decreases the relative security, if you're thinking as a realist, of some or all other states. The security dilemma shapes international relations in that it prevents even benign states from providing for their own security innocuously. States exhibit self-help behavior, fearing the power increases of even other friendly states. Since states care about survival, they are concerned with not absolute but relative power. The sum total of a state's resources is meaningless. The only salient statistic is whether that total outmatches its neighbors. To some extent, especially in the immediate post-war, this is the game the British are interested in when they think about Iranian oil. But further on, especially as under Eisenhower, the Americans begin to develop an image of themselves as the world's protectors against the Soviet menace. This is the dynamic that so-called realists, from Dulles to McNamara to Kissinger, were thinking about. So in May 1946, even before the Azerbaijan crisis was resolved, Tuta launched the first of what would be a very important series of strikes at the Abadan oil refinery. Compensation to Iran by the AIOC had not improved, and the conditions at Abadan had markedly worsened. Kinzer writes that while the British staff continued getting rich and living a colonial lifestyle that by that time was almost dead even in India, quote, Wages were 50 cents a day, 
There was no vacation pay, no sick leave, no disability compensation. The workers lived in a shanty town called Kagazabad, or Paper City, without running water or electricity, let alone such luxuries as iceboxes or fans. In winter, the earth flooded and became a flat, perspiring lake. The mud in town was knee-deep, and canoes ran alongside the roadways for transport. When the rain subsided, clouds of nipping, small-winged flies rose from the stagnant waters to fill the nostrils, collecting in black clouds along the rims of cooking pots and jamming the fans of the refinery with an unctuous glue. Summer was worse. It descended suddenly without a hint of spring. The heat was torrid, sticky, and unrelenting, while the wind and sandstorms whipped off the desert. The dwellings of Kagazabad, cobbled from rusted oil drums, hammered flat, turned into sweltering ovens, and every crevice hung the foul, sulfurous stench of burning oil, a pungent reminder that every day 20,000 barrels were being consumed indiscriminately for the functioning of the refinery, and that the AIOC never paid the government a cent for it." Unquote. This time around, Tuta's influence was strong enough to make the protest into a real general strike, shutting down operations entirely. The government made arrests of agitators, but operations only got up and running once the company conceded and the first comprehensive labor law in the Middle East guaranteed the eight-hour day, Friday pay, a minimum wage, the outlawing of child labor, and the right to form independent unions. The British and the Americans both sent labor attaches to their embassies in the wake of the strike, and both men concluded that the local staff of the AIOC, never having had to deal with unions and being accustomed to treat their employees like the coolie subjects of British Indian nababs, had handled the crisis pig-headedly, and had provoked it by not extending basic labor concessions that would have been given anywhere in the Western world. The Tuta continued growing in strength until the 4th of February, 1949, when an assassin tried and failed to kill the Shah, missing five shots at point-blank. Although the would-be killer hailed from the ranks of the Fedayeen e Islam, Iran's first fundamentalist Islamic organization, official repression landed on the Tuta, and the party went underground. By no means did the party stop organizing, but an illegal party necessarily has more trouble operating than a legal one. One aspect of the strike, which might have gone little noticed at the time, would take on grave importance in the next decade. On the very first day of the strike, May Day, 1946, the British consul in Khorram Shar heard a female speaker at a Tudor rally call for the wholesale nationalization of the oil industry. It was the first time that call had been heard in Iran, and it would not be the last. For the first time, we see the new Shah arriving at Parliament House to take over the reins of office in succession to his abdicated father. Shapur Mohammed Riza, the former Crown Prince, now occupies the Peacock Throne. Inside are assembled his cabinet ministers to witness the taking of the oath. The new Shah has had to provide evidence that he'll display a less pro-German attitude than his deposed predecessor. The ex-Shah of Persia exploited his people until his own coffers were filled to overflowing. The new Shah has no easy task ahead of him. Iran is likely to remain much in the news. In the aftermath of the rebellion in Azerbaijan, the Majlis denounced any foreign designs on Iran's northern territories and passed a resolution urging the government to, quote, initiate negotiations to redeem the rights of the nation over the resources of the country, both below and above the ground, especially regarding oil in the south, unquote. Between the strikes and the action of the Iranian parliament, the British Foreign Office sort of took the hint that something would have to give and put pressure on the AIOC to reach a further accommodation with Iran. Despite the British government holding a controlling interest in the company, its officers operated independently and under a colonial style that was going out of fashion, and negotiations were not fruitful. 
The Iranians, first under Kavam and then under three different premiers because of tumult within the Majlis, pushed for a 50-50 profit-sharing agreement, which the AIOC, of course, opposed. The chairman of the company, Sir William Fraser, don't remember that name, flew down to Iran to offer what became known as the Supplemental Agreement. He offered to improve the amount paid per ton of oil from the equivalent of 25 cents to 75 cents, a 50-50 share would have been over $4, to calculate the Iranian cut of profits before taxes, which was worth this as well since it looked as though the AOC was cooking its books and could more or less decide what it would pay in a given year, and to guarantee that royalties never fell below 4 million pounds, which was way less than half of what the company was raking in year after year. From Abrahamian's book, quote, Max Thornburg, a former advisor to Standard Oil and the State Department, who had been employed by the Iranian government as an economic consultant since 1946, urged the prime ministers not to sign. The proposals, he argued, were drafted so obscurely and so ambiguously that no one in the world could have known where the Persian government would have been left if it had signed the agreement. He recommended holding out for the 50-50 principle, and himself took a rushed trip to London to, quote, make clear to the AOC board of directors that what faced them in Persia was not mere stubbornness or oriental bargaining shrewdness, but a rising tide of inflamed hostility among the people of the country, not only towards the company, but toward whatever elements of responsible government still existed, unquote. He admitted that his London trip had not been a success, end quote. A theme that has been emerging and will continue to emerge in this episode is that time and again people, American, British, and Iranian, will come to warn first the government in London and later the Eisenhower administration of the obvious and direct consequences of what they're doing or planning to do. But empire was empire, hubris was hubris, and nobody listens to Cassandra. Iranian constitutional politics was confused from 1906 until 1979, and never worked all the time the way it had been laid out on paper. But the idea with the Majlis was that the body would pick a prime minister and submit him for approval by the Shah. Sometimes it went that way, and sometimes, when the Shah and his foreign benefactors were ascendant, it would work backwards, with the Shah appointing a premier who would then attempt to build a cabinet. In the wake of the AIOC chairman's delivery of the supplemental agreement, the Shah put various politicians into the prime minister's seat, but none of them, because of the agreement's deep unpopularity with the Iranian people, was willing to bring it to a vote in front of the Majlis, or to guarantee that vote would go their way. The Shah and the British set about trying to rig a parliamentary election in the second half of 1949 to obtain a more amenable parliament. While the fundamental laws of the constitutional movement had opened up the franchise to every Iranian male, they had not guaranteed the independence of those votes. Large landholders could bring their tenants to the polls en masse, the election authorities could be bribed into separating the containers for yes and no votes, effectively making votes public, the British controlled tribal leaders in their areas of influence who could bring their entire communities to the ballot box, and both the Shah and the British could flood average and parliamentary pockets with cash. As this was going on, one man, a diehard constitutionalist, issued a statement inviting all Iranians who had an interest in free and unbiased elections to gather in front of his home in Tehran on the 13th of October, 1949. Thousands of like-minded people turned up, and they marched on the Shah's palace. They held a rally there, and then he and several dozen supporters pledged to occupy the royal lawns until the Shah guaranteed a free election. After three days, the Shah, who was about to travel to the United States and didn't want the protest following him on the trip, gave in, and the elections went on relatively free. That man was Mohammad Mossadegh, and he would go on to shape the entire future history of Iran. So that's the end of the sixth episode of Safer Democracy. 
like I said in the beginning, the script for this one got pretty long on me, and it's going to take us more than a couple of episodes to make our way from the Kings of Kings all the way up through the present day. But I think they're shaping up to be good shows, and especially now, as the current US administration looks as though it's trying to go to war with Iran, I think it's worth getting in just about as much context as we can. The next episode, which will take us up through the night of the coup in the summer of 1953, is already written and mostly recorded, so it'll be out in a couple of weeks. That should give me time to get the reading done for the next couple, and we might be able to get the whole Iran series out on time. I'm moving to Guadalajara right now though, which definitely means more expenses and hopefully means more of my pitches getting picked up, so no promises about any timelines for now. What is definitely happening is the content on the blog, so head to safefordemocracy.com to check that out, as well as the page for today's show, which has maps and photos and a full bibliography as always. This is a passion project, but could always use your help. Visit the website, visit our Facebook page, visit our Twitter, and definitely, definitely rate us. Like right now, on whatever service or program you're using to listen, go right now and rate the show. SFD is written, edited, recorded, produced, and webmastered by me. But this week I'd like to thank Tara Meyer and Samara Bocanegra for help with the site and the show. Next time, it's Mohammed Mossadegh, Nationalization, Truman, Eisenhower, and Operation Ajax. Until then, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.